The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. All set, Len? I'm with you. Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome one and all to Night Fright. Silent Coup contains exclusive new material gathered from hundreds of interviews, from still unreleased government documents from the complete Oval Office logs of Nixon's presidency, and from a painstaking cross-examination of the books and testimony of the major and minor players in the story. The result is a major revision of history, one that will forever change our understanding of how and why Richard Nixon was forced to resign. Investigator Len Kolodny is a journalist. He's relentlessly pursued the people who brought down the president. Their revelation shocked the world and forever changed our understanding of politics and journalism and of Washington behind closed doors. It's my great pleasure to welcome Len to the show for the first time, but most definitely not the last time. How are things in Tampa tonight, my friend? Tampa's a little wet tonight. <laughs> We've been under, under siege for about five days, but it's Florida, and it's the summer, and it's hot. And it's hot. It's, hot. it's been hot here, too. We haven't had rain in, uh, oh my goodness, it must be two months now. Two months straight. We just haven't had any rain I'll whatsoever. Blow it. I'll blow it north. Okay, that'd be sweet. <laughs> okay, let's dive in right away, shall we? Now, one of the uh, the things I was surprised to learn was about Bob Woodward. And Bob Woodward, folks, um, was together with Carl Bernstein. They were two guys that looked at the Watergate investigation from a journalistic point of view. They were two journalists. As a matter of fact... There was a book released and a movie with Robert Redford and um, I was going to say De Niro. It's not De Niro. It's uh, Dustin Hoffman playing them. And uh, they're investigative reporters. And they were considered heroes at the time because they brought forward, they broke the story about Watergate. Now, according to you, sir, you say Bob Woodward lied to you and to his readers. It's the most serious part of the book, and it's how the book opens. This book is now 25 years old. This is a new edition called the 25th Anniversary Edition. And the good thing about Silent Coup is you or your listeners 
can go to the computer and type in Watergate.com and you'll see the evidence of exactly what I'm talking about. Woodward lied about who he was and where he worked in the Nixon White House. He worked in the Nixon White House in 1969 to 1970, manning a special back channel uh, through which secret messages would go around the Defense Department and around the State Department. And Woodward would get these messages and bring them to the White House and brief Alexander Haig. Hmm. He never told us that. He portrayed himself as this outside journalist who was cracking the case when in fact he was an insider. And so when you go to Watergate.com, at the top it'll say the Woodward Hague connection. So we said to Woodward in a taped interview, did you ever brief Alexander Hague? Did you ever brief anybody? And Woodward came back and said, no, I never briefed anybody and I defy you to produce one person who will say I did. So we went to his boss, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Thomas Moore, and we asked Moore, and you can hear it, it's right there on the tape, you click on it. And Moore said, we asked Moore, my partner did Bob Gillen, uh, does Bob Woodward ever brief Alexander Haig? And he said, sure. And then he explained how he did it and why he did it. We went the next step up the ladder to the Secretary of Defense, Melvin Laird. Same question, same answer, Woodward's lying. And what he's doing by lying is covering up his true role in forcing Nixon out. Uh, so that is changes your entire look at Woodward. If you know that, you don't need to go into a garage and talk to some mysterious figure called Deep Throat. You pick up the phone and you say, hey, Alex Bob, didn't do that. He said he didn't do that. Yeah. But that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> You're investigating a place you used yeah. to work at with people you used to work for, and you've got to go to a garage with some mysterious guy who somehow turned out one day to be an FBI agent. Len, can you tell the folks who, real quick, who Al Haig was? Alexander Haig started out as a deputy to Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger, of course, was the top of the, uh, the National Security Advisor to the President of the United States, and his deputy was, was Al Haig. And what he specialized in, when people would come over from the Pentagon, particularly military people, they would only see Al Haig. And then, as a result of that, Haig and became closer to the President. And he started to move up the line. He, got, he became a general, with one star, then two stars. But what everybody didn't know was that he opposed detente, the foreign policy that Nixon had done with China and the Soviet Union, and particularly the war in Vietnam. He was unable to, to find out what Nixon was doing as far as troop levels. They would not tell him. They, they wouldn't tell the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. So finally, Thomas Moore put together a spy operation, and it was inside the White House. There's this little office called the, the Military Liaison Office, and there was an Admiral Robinson in there. Admiral Robinson w was the middle guy who would receive the stolen materials from a Yeoman Radford and give them to, uh, to Thomas Moore. We can prove that because in a later stage, Admiral Robinson was replaced by Admiral Wellander. Admiral Robert Wellander 
You're going to love this, was Woodward's former commanding officer on the USS Fox and had been for a whole year. Uh, Haid was their inside guy. And Wellander admits this in a confession that's still top secret. You can't get it out of the archives, but it's in silent coup. And of course, it's on the website under military spiring. You go there and all the interviews and materials are there, including my interview with Admiral Moore, who said, didn't spy, didn't do anything. And then I started reading him this Wellander confession where Wellander says, yeah, I went through the stuff and I gave it to Tom Moore. Well, when I got there, he started to stutter. Oh my God, no. Yeah, well, maybe I, I didn't really, I, it's all stuff I had seen before, right? You were stealing stuff you had seen before. That was the beginning of where Haig and Nixon become virtual enemies, but Nixon doesn't know it. And the reason he doesn't know it is because Nixon covers up the spy ring when he finds it. He finds it in December of 1971. There's a recording that's sitting in the Oval, in, in the uh, next to the Oval Office. Haldeman, Ehrlichman, uh, John Mitchell, and they're being told that the President of the United States is being moved on by the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And Nixon says, it's a federal offense of the highest order. And oh, my God, yes. And Mitchell says, uh, not so fast, sir. I think you ought to paper this over. That's their favorite, paper it over. And they did. And what they papered was Al. He didn't know that Haig, because he never read the confession, never went the next step. And this is where conspiracy theorists get all screwed up. If there's a conspiracy by Haig and Woodward to force Nixon out, Nixon's got to be part of the conspiracy because he made Al Haig his chief of staff. It was a situational thing. It wasn't a planned thing because nobody could plan that the power of the presidency would be in the hands of a man who opposed the policies of the man that he's protecting. Okay. So I, I think that gives you the insight as to one of the most dramatic changes that Silent Coup brings. Silent Coup, folks, is in the name of the book. Our guest tonight is Len Kolodnys and uh, www.nightfrightshow.com. You'll be able to uh, order the book from the comfort of your own home, as I like to say right there. Now, I've got to tell you who a f- few of these folks are that... Uh, Len just mentioned. John Ehrlichman was a Nixon aide. And if you look at the movie Nixon by Oliver Stone, to me his uh, greatest masterpiece was JFK, but just after that he made a movie precisely about what we're talking about tonight, Nixon. It was played by J.T. Walsh. His chief of staff, Nixon's chief of staff, was H.R. Haldeman, and he was played by James Woods. So that's just to give you a little bit of background. G. Gordon Liddy, uh, was general counsel to the committee for the re-election of the president, and that was creep. All right, we should tell the folks. Can you tell the folks very briefly, in your own words, what Watergate was all about? Watergate was uh, something, again, situational. John Dean had been spying on the Democrats, set up a call girl ring uh, with a madam that he knew, a woman named Heidi Riken, and a, a young lawyer named Phil Bailey, and eventually that became a huge problem. And then and there's a break-in. Nixon doesn't order the break-in. He has nothing to do with the break-in. But being Richard Nixon, it's time to cover up again, paper it over. And for a whole week in March of 1973, he and Dean sit there and plot the cover-up, including the president issuing a statement 
that was totally false and Dean knew it. Dean is a bad actor, but for the military and those who were foreign policy foes of the president, he was just fine and they used him and they used the Watergate break-in. So the Watergate break-in is the excuse. The reason is foreign policy. Completely foreign policy. What kind of foreign policy was Nixon doing at the time? Just for the it, folks that are unaware of what was going on precisely at that time. Nixon takes the oath of office January 20th, 1969. He holds his hand up and I swear to uphold the Constitution. He went right back to the White House and signed a document called NSDN2. It totally reconfigured the National Security Council so that all the power of the CIA, the State Department, and the Defense Department all went into this little office. And the, the people who actually ran it, like Laird and Helms and, and Rogers, they were just figureheads. Nixon had figured out that he needed to, to take his government secret because these individuals, Defense Laird and Secretary of State Rogers and CIA Helms, they all go to the Congress. They have to be confirmed, and therefore they have to testify. And in Nixon's mind, if they don't know it, they can't tell anybody. And he did. He formed a secret government. So now we're watching a battle of a government within the government. And it's a tremendous story. Uh, Nixon's Gamble, which just came out from Ray Locker, tells that story in great detail. It's a build on Silent Coup, and it's built on my other book, 40 Years More, The Rise and Fall of the Neocons from Nixon to Obama. There were no neocons before there was a Richard Nixon president. His, his acts literally brought together the Scoop Jackson Democrats with the right-wing Republicans. And if you want to know who won the battle, Kissinger or, or Haig, Haig won the battle. Notice who Reagan made his secretary of state was Alexander Haig. Yeah. And the interesting thing was the, the antithesis of detente was something called the provocative weakness theory. It was pre presented by a fellow named Fritz Kramer, who was the mentor to Haig, both Haig and Kissinger. Under the provocative weakness theory, you don't negotiate with anybody. You, you shoot them before you negotiate with them. We saw a bit of that in the George W. Bush administration. The Republicans adopted that in, in 1980, and they called it peace through strength. And you can hear that all, every Republican, peace through strength and weakness. That's what that fight was about, and Nixon lost. And we ended up going from detente into what we had, certainly under George W. Bush, we were in the totally in the peace through strength business. Um, was not so much. Was Nixon hated for going into China and trying to create diplomatic relations with China? Open up China, as they say he did? It's, it flew in the face of everything the right-wing Republicans believed in. Mm. They, they had to swallow it. They had to run, they were going to run a candidate against him in New Hampshire. They were that livid. Bill Buckley and friends just could not believe what he was doing. He, you know, one day announces... Now, Kissinger pops up in China, and the next thing you know, the president of the United States is planning a trip. And this is the picture that you'd have to imagine to, to really understand it. You're fighting in Vietnam, you're getting killed, and he's toasting Mao Zedong. I mean, you talk about hate. He was bleeding us out of Vietnam. He was negotiating with the Chinese using Vietnam as a bargaining chip, using Vietnam with the Soviets to make his deal. 
this is an amazing story and it it really opens up history to understand how we are where we are today it isn't just about nixon it's about today and the kind of fight we're having and the wars that we're losing it just, exactly I just want to arc back to that. I just want to tell folks, when Nixon originally ran in 1968, he ran primarily on a platform of ending the Vietnam War. Let's not forget the Vietnam War was raging at the time. This is essential to remember. Remember only 10 years ago when we were in the middle of the, uh, the Iraqi War and also the Afghanistan War and how outraged people were at the time. Well, multiply that by 10 if you will. So everybody thought that Nixon was going to end the war. Now what's important here to remember, Bobby Kennedy was running for that same presidential election and he probably would have been president except something very sinister happened to stop him. He was assassinated. That basically ensured that Nixon was going to become president at that point. I just want to continue a little bit more. He was known as an anti-communist, Richard Nixon. So when he decided to go into China and open up those relations, Len's exactly right. The whole right wing of the party, ultra-conservatives, were outraged because, of course, China's communist. Now, going back to Vietnam, many people think that he held off making peace in Vietnam as you say, as a bargaining chip. Do you agree with that assessment? Yes, that's exactly what happened. Nixon said he had a secret plan to end the war. That's when he was running. What he wasn't telling you that he was busy playing with the Paris peace talks. He was getting the stall in the Paris peace talks telling them you'll get a better deal if I'm president than under Johnson. And Johnson knew it. And Johnson called Nixon up and said, stop it. Now, it's been sort of treated secretly, but we're, we're getting closer and more information that so he plays with the peace talks, he becomes president, and then there's a really interesting meeting. He sends Kissinger to meet with Dobrynin 30 days after he's president, and Kissinger says to Dobrynin, we're getting out of Vietnam. Just give us some space. Wait a minute. You don't tell your generals that you just told the enemy that you're getting out? What is that? The Soviet Union, by the way, folks. The ambassador from the Soviet Union. So this is a mess. And, and the politics be damned because Nixon is, he's doing what he wants to do, and he's doing it because he, he knew from his years as vice president under Eisenhower how this thing worked. So it wasn't by accident. The things he did are the things he did, and we can fight over whether they were good or bad. There are people who used to say to me, well, only Nixon could have gone to China and got away with it. And I could say he didn't get away with it. If he'd have gotten away with it, he wouldn't have been out the door. This is the anniversary, of course, of the resignation, uh, August 9th. So the, the ball game was, was totally changed. And the power that Nixon took with NSDM2 never got taken back by the Congress, the war power. It's in Obama's hands, just like it was in Nixon's hands. They don't understand. The first thing Congress did to try and balance it out when he invaded Cambodia. So they came up with something called the War Powers Act, and it got watered down. It turns out the War Powers Act, which was meant to offset NSDM2, said to the president, you can invade a country, but write us a letter in 60 days, and we'll see about whether we agree or not. Well, President 
a year ago said we're fighting ISIS, we're going into Syria. Oh, by the way, I sent you a letter. We haven't had a vote. The power that Nixon took is still there, and it's worse because the drones fit under that power. And the drones can be used without having to go to Congress. When you go kill somebody in another country, invading them with a drone and then killing. Targeted so assassination. It's very, very significant what he did in that very brief period of time. And that's where it all started to go downhill. Now, I should tell folks about Cambodia, right beside Vietnam, Cambodia, the country. What would happen is the North Vietnamese would attack the South, just hustle back and all run across the border to Cambodia, thinking that they couldn't be got there because it was a separate country. Nixon said, no, I'm going to go in and I'm going to start bombing them all, all the bases that the North Vietnamese held in Cambodia, and that's exactly what he did. Some say, Len, that that was a smart thing to do because that brought the North Vietnamese to the table to negotiate. But I'm thinking now that the North Vietnamese were already willing to come to the table after what you've just told me. Oh, they would. First, it doesn't make any sense at that point. None of it makes sense. Basically, the deal that Nixon was offered in 69 is the deal he got in, in, in the end. The Christmas bombing that had to be used to force North Vietnam no, it was nonsense. It was to show South Vietnam that he meant business. South Vietnam was the trouble. Getting them to the table was the problem. The North Vietnamese, who were doing just fine, uh, said they'd be glad to come to the table. They wanted to end it as quickly yes, as they because, well, they're going to win. I mean, by that, by that time, if America says they're getting out and they can see this so-called, they called it Vietnamization, uh, Secretary Laird came up with this name, that, that you would replace, every American troop would be replaced by a South Vietnamese troop. So they called it Vietnamization. So you're watching these American troops go out and these weaker troops come in. Why in the world do you want any more bloodshed? You, you just need a matter of time before you're going to take over. But Nixon was persistent in the policy mm -hmm. and it, he carried on, I think, in a way that uh, the worst thing he did was bleed us out of Vietnam. Watergate's a, a nothing compared to the things you and I are discussing today and the ramifications of those things that, that uh, are still affect us as you and I are talking. Should war crimes be levied towards that administration? You know, in the world we live in, war crimes seem to appear every day. Mm. Uh, I think it wasn't that. I think the Constitution was the problem. We didn't follow it. We didn't... The Congress is supposed to declare war. Vietnam is a disaster. I when I was part of the anti-war movement. I, I went to the Capitol and, and protested. I went to the mall. Uh, we did all kinds of things. We had something called a new Democratic coalition to try and get our, our Democrat party back. It was a mess. And the assassinations only made it more complicated. The same forces that bothered JFK are the same forces that bothered Nixon, whether it was the CIA or the military industrial complex or whatever, they had this fear, particularly of the agency, both men. That's one of the reasons I think Nixon did it. I think he was thinking ahead of, of Kennedy. This doesn't mean the two are linked as far as killing Kennedy, but those forces were clearly at work against the president of the United States. And the president, in Nixon's case, knew it and tried to do something about it, which I would argue was unconstitutional.
Len, you know, my, my demographic's a little bit different than, than most folks. I get a lot of younger folk tuning in, and they are very curious about what happened in the 60s and the 70s. They're not being taught it anymore in school properly anyways. I, if you could, I don't want to go off too far, but as an aside, can you tell in your own words what happened to the country between November 22nd, 1963, the, Canadi the Kennedy assassination folks, and June 6th, 1968, Bobby Kennedy's assassination? Well, this country was in turmoil. We had the war and the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement moving dynamically both at the same time. And the country was just being torn apart in ways even we can't think of today because we don't have the draft. The draft was in the mix then. The draft isn't in the mix now. It was a very difficult period. The first campaign I worked in was JFK in 1960. I worked in that campaign and I I, I thought we had taken over the Democratic Party. I, we, we were joined. We beat Hubert Humphrey. We beat him in West Virginia, where they said a Catholic couldn't win. And that was another issue in the campaign. So as a 22-year-old, Kennedy was like, man, the, you know, the new frontier. We're going places. We're going to get, forget World War II. We're, we're going to move the country. And then like one day, I remember I was in, in a place called Kosher Corner with my dad, and I heard that Kennedy had been shot. And it was like somebody just tore. And that was a wound that affected all the other wounds. We really didn't start to, to, to understand the dynamic till after that period. I think uh, maybe starting in the late 60s, we started to, to look at the Kennedy assassination, trying to deal with it in the context of all the other things that are going on. We know now, Lynn, that Kennedy wanted to stop the war and have everybody out of there by uh, December 1965, if I'm not mistaken. We know the main consequence of that assassination was the ramping up, the very opposite of what Kennedy wanted, of the Vietnam War. Well, be clear, there's still a debate as to whether Kennedy was or wasn't getting us out. I lived through that debate back in the 60s. There were whispers then, you know, Kennedy had already made the decision. Um, I don't know. I, I think, I think it made it would have made a difference. It's nothing you can prove. It's just there is there's some documentation now that that indicates he he was going to get out. But you listen to the Johnson tapes, mm -hmm. and I've done that too. He uh, he talks to Dick Russell, senator from Georgia, right, and sort of says to him, you know, if I don't go to war now, this is after he gets nominated and reelected. if I do, don't go to war in Vietnam, I'm going to get impeached. Did he really believe that he was going to get impeached? I mean, hmm. you know, he, he wanted to pass his new agenda, which was a good agenda, which included Medicare, which included really important things. Civil Rights Voting Act. Right. Yeah. And then he gets diverted. And he, it keeps ramping up. And you have something like the Gulf of Tonkin, where there's an alleged, an alleged battle in, in, in the Gulf of Tonkin that never took place. That's right. But which the Congress, again, the Congress, and Nixon knows this and he's watching this, they go ahead and they pass a resolution quote, that allows retaliation, which ends up being invasion in a big way. So mm -hmm. there was great turmoil. Uh, 
because you know when we started to to, to fight the, for the nomination in in 68 gene mccarthy was the first wedge that we had he was the senator from from minnesota and what mccarthy did is he showed the weakness of johnson and johnson literally after new hampshire primary had to get out he wasn't viable but what people should know today is humphrey was placed in in there he wasn't he didn't win a primary he was placed in there because they wanted to continue to power what they did and maybe they thought nixon was could lose to, to uh to humphrey it was close and who knows who won or who lost certainly the job to kennedy Kennedy Nixon is really up for debate whether Kennedy won or Kennedy lost. But uh, when you when you have the kind of turmoil that this country was in, and it, it's kind of there today, but it's under the surface. People are talking about it, but not like they did in in the war, in the Vietnam War. It's mm. it doesn't have the vibrancy. But people are still getting killed. Seventy two hundred people killed since nine eleven. We're at war, and the candidates don't even talk about war. It's like it didn't exist. And it just, uh, you know, I, in, in 40 years war, uh, I wrote about the, the Clinton years. And the, Clinton, the Clintons really paved the way for us to go into Iraq. When Clinton had his little sexual affair, the Republicans or the neocons in those days were pushing him to sign something called the Iraqi Liberation Act in 1998. And it was basically American approval for overthrowing Saddam Hussein. He didn't want to sign it, but the pressure against impeachment was so great that he went ahead and signed it anyway. And the next year he went ahead and did the same thing and, and got some funds for it. So when Hillary Clinton voted to go to Iraq, she had already been part of the, of the road to Iraq. Uh, one of the reasons that I wrote 40 Years War is because I didn't understand how Al Haig ever got inside the Nixon White House. It just made no sense. How did he do it? So I, I asked around for years, and then Roger Morris, who writes the forward to my two books, Roger says, I think it's a guy named Fritz Kramer. I said, wait a minute, that's the football coach at Michigan. No, Len, he's, he's an expat German who has this incredible theory and who's all powerful over at the Pentagon. And I never understood that. So what I did is I, I traced that whole period up to the, the election of Obama. Now, in October, we're reissuing 40 Years War with an update, just like we did with Silent Coup. But don't nobody should un misunderstand. Silent Coup was the road to 40 Years War. It, I didn't just write about something over here and something over there. And it really is very- They're connected. They're, they're connected. And we can't find a way out of it. We can't find a way to end this war. I mean, Obama's, a, he wanted to get us out. But the reality of, of what's in there, uh, I mean, we created ISIS. I mean, we're acting like ISIS. Hey, folks, you you debathified the, the Iraqi army. You took all of Saddam's people and you said, get out. We don't want you. The generals, the colonels, and the captains, goodbye. And they went and formed ISIS. Hey, shock. Imagine it's that. been one. It's been one stumble after another, and there's no way constitutionally that we see anything happening. The Congress is so weak that it, and Nixon took so much power. I don't think people understand 
the, the dimension of power that he took. And while they got rid of Watergate, they got rid of John Dean, the most important thing stayed with the White House. Stayed with the White House. Is there any way of reversing that? Yeah, the Congress could stand up and, you know, they have the power to declare war. They're letting this go on. They, they you know, they have the power. The so Senator, first question, Len, is why? Why would they do that? Why would they not grab the power back and bring it to the people's representatives instead of single person? They're scared. What are they what afraid are, of, Len? They're, well, they got military in their districts. They've got all kinds of, of powerful people who, who are making money off this, this war. I mean, we had private enterprise uh, big time, still have private enterprise big time in Iraq and, and so forth, Afghanistan. You know, I understand we got hit on 9-11. Go get the people that hit us. But instead of doing it, you divert yourself to, to Iraq. I write about this. They went to Iraq for power. They wanted to be have a power base in the Middle East where they could affect everything. And the neocons had talked about going to Iraq ever since Saddam yeah. took Kuwait. They, that, that was like a drumbeat. And then Cheney comes in and, hey, we're going. We were going before 9-11, and 9-11 just really gave them the opportunity. But I see a Congress that's, a, that divides, uh, that doesn't stand up, that does a lot of talking, that doesn't pass anything. And I don't think, you know, they talk about vets and how they love vets and vets mm -hmm. are this and that. And then they come back and they get, they get lousy treatment. So I don't get it. Hypocrisy. I, I, well, I, I certainly think back to the days of Kennedy and Johnson when we did march and when we did these things, and we're not doing those things. We're just not. Okay, we study the past not only for the past not to, not to relive the past or to, uh, to prevent things from happening again, but we also study the past to look for precedent for templates that have happened in the past to current events that are happening now as a way of resolving them. For example, Ted Sorensen was my, my friend and I interviewed him uh, on several occasions. I said, Ted, what are the lessons learned from the Cuban Missile Crisis? He said, there was three lessons, Brent. He said, number one, you gotta put yourself in the other people's shoes. It's impossible to figure out a solution unless you understand their perspective as well. He said, number two is very important, of course, you've got to build a global team. You've got to put a lot of people on the same team as yourself from around the world because they do listen to global pressure. And he said, number three, you have to be able to talk to your adversary instead of punching them in the nose first. So I think that's pretty good advice. What I think we've done, as you've suggested, and, and I agree with you, is we're still punching people in the noses instead of talking to them. We've learned nothing. Uh, one thing I've learned, the powers hate silent girl. I got it. I understand why they hate it. A lot of people talk to me mm. on both sides, including Bob Ward, including John Dean. Most of the characters, the president wouldn't talk to me. President Nixon didn't. But very strangely, uh, December, after the book was out, I go to the mailbox, and there's a letter, handwritten note from Richard Nixon. Congratulations on your long stay on the bestseller list. And I'm thinking, why didn't you talk to me? Yeah. 
I know why he didn't, because hey, he knows he blundered. That was the huge blunder he made. He didn't understand Hay, and he believed Hay got him pardoned, that he, it was Hay who made the deal with Ford, that he owes Hay for not having to go on trial and not going to prison. It's a very, very dark ending to the story. The disappointment to me is we learn from history. Yes. We were, you know, we weren't born, you know, with no history, with nothing behind us. And we're learning nothing. I don't see that we've gained it. Calling me a conspiracy theorist is, you know, it, it doesn't work. Silent Coup is a solid book. It's a great book. Having the website to go with it. The greatest thing, one of the greatest things that happened to Silent Coup was uh, two years ago, Texas A&M University came and they wanted to, to make a deal for my research material. And we did, we arrived at agreement and all my research material is now at Texas A&M being prepared to go online one day. And historians and journalists, and they can, they're gonna have to make their own mind up. Muzzle tough. But yes, it, it was a big deal. And, and republishing Silent Coup was a big deal because the hatred over Silent Coup came from everywhere. The John Dean people, the Bob Woodward people, the Washington Post told me what the target was for them. When they wrote about Silent Coup, they said, we never interviewed Admiral Moore. It's all a lie. It was just made up. And the next day, Admiral Moore, who didn't know he'd been taped, was confronted with the tape. And he's, oh, yes, I, I, now I remember. To this day, the Washington Post has not retracted that statement. Not once. Not ever. Woodward, he isn't going away. He's investigating Trump now. He's got a team of 20 reporters and they're writing a book and it's fairy tale land. These people are in reality. And look at the circus we're running over here. Mm. We've got a woman nobody trusts and we got a crazy guy. And then we're, we're, what are we supposed to do? In my case, I can't pull either lever and I know that. I can't intellectually do that. So fortunately, there's a competent governor running who I can at least, whether I'm his party or not, doesn't matter anymore. Uh, and I'd probably end up pulling that one. I just, uh, it, it's disappointing to have my grandchildren see what's going on right now. I've got an 11-year-old little girl. She comes home and, 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 you know, she hears that what's going on and she's reflecting it at 11 years old. This isn't nice. This isn't pretty what's going on in this country right now. I believe that we've made a contribution. I believe that Silent Coup has made a contribution. Agreed. And I, you know, that's, you do what you can do. And those of us that live in the Kennedy years and those that work for Kennedy, uh, what a disappointment it was to lose him like, like that. Yeah. You just, you couldn't believe it. There's a very good book that I don't know who, who, who owns it anymore called Six Seconds in Dallas. And Josiah had, Thompson. Josiah Thompson. Uh, forget Who Shot Who. That is a great book. That was, It's a seminal book. I, uh, in 1967 and 1968, appeared on television with Mark Lane, Harold Weisberg, and Jack Anderson on a station in Washington called WFAN. And I had studied the Warren Commission report and I was there basically talking about the commission, not about Mark's book, Rush to Judgment or whatever. Yeah. But we were all part of that. Uh, I think I got my, my, my learning process 
from that experience because I, there were a lot of things in Nixon that really reflect the uh, the reality of what happened to Kennedy. I, I think... Can you tell us some of those? Well, certainly the forces are the same. And if, if they weren't real, Nixon believed they were the same. He wondered about the Kennedy assassination. Bob Haldeman wondered about it. It's on my tapes of interviews with these guys. It's very interesting. I got criticized because I, I wasn't prosecuting uh, the case. I was, I was, they said, too kind to my, to the people who were. And so I, I said, well, wait a minute. Uh, the way I, talk to people is conversationally. I'm not a prosecutor. I don't talk, I'm not a prosecutor. I don't come after you. We talk about this and we talk about, and you know, they tell me everything. It's like, I'm their friend. You listen to those tapes mm -hmm. and things like Earl would say, John Earl would say, oh yeah, we sent some CIA gold over to the Bermuda Triangle or whatever, or whatever it was over in Burma, the Burma we were buying poppies. Now, I didn't ask him about that. I, I wasn't that interested in it, but there are people who take great significance in it. So, Did they ever really, uh, reveal any suspicions of who they thought was behind the Kennedy assassination? No, I didn't. It wasn't that way. It was sort of like they, there were two things that they were interested in, the Bay of Pigs and the Kennedy assassination. And there was an attempt to get the Bay of Pigs stuff from Helms, Ehrlichman made it at the president's request. Right. A president made a direct order to Helms to turn the, and he wouldn't. Nixon made the order to Helms, right? And Helms, and and the other thing is, when Nixon was reelected, he swore he was going to tear the CIA up, and he sent Schlesinger in there with that, with that order. And soon as Hague, and I call it the Hague presidency, the Hague administration comes into power in May of 1973, one of the first things he does is move Schlesinger out and bring Bill Colby back in. So a lot of the things that Nixon, there just are things between the two administrations and their fears and, and who was secretly doing what to who, that even if... To me, there's not much difference between the assassination and a coup. The end result was the same. The same. President was gone. Yeah, policies are gone. I, I write in an author's note, Americans have to understand, Nixon was never tried. He was never found guilty. There was no impeachment. There was nothing. We got an unelected president in Ford, or unelected vice president in Rockefeller. We probably would not have gotten President Carter, and there's a real good chance if Nixon had survived, it never would have been a Ronald Reagan. Mm. Those are significant turns in history, and they're all blocked by the word Watergate. Watergate, everything's a gate, and Watergate, all you have to say about Watergate is Nixon went to China, and then he, he broke in and covered up, and he was gone. And that misses all this conversation that you and I have just had, or the conversation I try to have with my readers. I want them to hear and read and now with the website, they can do it. They don't have to just believe Len Kalani. They can go and they can hear these tapes. Uh, one day they'll be able to hear everything. But uh, Those connections, by the way, folks, and a link to buy his book will be on the www.nightfrightshow.com website. As always, just click on the book cover. That'll take you right to a spot where you can order the book from the comfort of your own home. And 
a link to Len's great website. I was on it earlier this week and today again. Full, full, pack jam full of information. Yeah, and we, it's a wealth of information. It's a legacy. The history tellers. Bob Woodward became the history teller. Yeah. This is nuts. The fairy tales history. John Dean, who admitted to me on tape that his book was made up. I'm saying, well, if you made this up and the other guy made that up, and that's the history we're drawing on. You know, hopefully there was a period of time where uh, Hollywood did want to talk about silent coup. But as you know, we got into a lawsuit with John Dean. Suit, it took seven years. And this is I'm the defendant in this suit. We put together a 3,500-page summary judgment motion. Just as we were getting ready to have the judge rule on it, my insurance company had said, you know, we've been at this for eight years, and they called me up and said, would you take $200,000 to let John Dean dismiss the suit? And I said, well, we, we just, you paid seven years to have this historic document made by Benton Becker and Charlie Carlson. Benton Becker was President Ford's aide and, and, and involved in getting the pardon to Nixon. And we did it. And I said, no. I said, that doesn't make sense to me. Three weeks later, same company, same call. Will you take $415,000 to let Dean dismiss? Wow. And my lawyer said, you know, you'll still be open to suit. Hmm. Okay. So he said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, each side at the end prepares a motion. His side, our side. So he prepared a motion to dismiss, but in my motion to dismiss, there's a federal court order issued that John Dean can never sue me again. And so I really could not, for, for my family after all this time, Understood. Understood. But, but, but Silent Coup was protected. Every word that we got sued on is in Silent Coup again. I didn't change a thing in the body of the book. Everything is the same. The update, again, implicates the media in our country. Hmm. Who are who really love this particular lie, the, the Woodward lie, because it, many of them came to did the job because they saw the movie and said, "Oh, this is great." Ray Locker, who's my dear friend, and, uh, he came to journalism this way. He's he's one of the most disappointed men you could imagine. I bet. He, I mean, it's almost an anger. I got fooled. I got duped. It's duplicity. Oh well, don't worry about Len. He's a conspiracy theorist. And one of the guys that really likes Silent Coup and talks about it openly and loves it is, is uh, Gerald Posner, who wrote Case Closed on mm -hmm. the Kennedy assassination. So I always kid, I say to Gerald, does that mean it's case opened here? And, a, and he knows, I've sent him a picture of me and Mark Lane and whatever. And so, Mark was a very good friend of mine. He just passed away, folks. Uh, I know. Yeah. I, he was, he was, he was, you know, when you were with them, with Weisberg and Lane and together, they're fighting all the time over this. Over that. I mean, it was great. That show was a, a three-hour show. And the night, the last night we did one together was the night Bobby Kennedy was shot. And I remember coming home, and we just spent three hours on, on you know, it's now 1 o'clock in the morning. I'm going to bed, but I left the radio on, and I hear something about Kennedy being shot. And I thought I was dreaming about what happened at WFAN that night. And sure enough, I get up in the morning, and Bobby's barely breathing for, you know, I, 
maybe it, I've had some really eerie, strange things. Uh, I did come to the conclusion in 1973 that it was really tough. I went into to, to a government. I, I was ahead, oversaw the Prince George's County, Maryland Police Department for five years. Uh, I had concluded on the Kennedy thing that, from my view, I'd done as much as I could do. Uh, it, there were too many competing theories then. There was no consensus. Everybody knew that the Warren Commission was a joke, that it was covering up, but you have too many. In the Nixon thing, he's got tapes. Yeah. You, I mean, if we had the kind of taping in the Kennedy years that we had, I, we might have a totally different picture in front of us. Or if we'd have a better understanding. Len, we've only got a few minutes left. Two big questions I wanted to ask you, and you mentioned the tapes, and that's a perfect segue, Nixon's tapes, to the question, was he an anti-Semite? Well, as a Jew, <laughs> uh, I came to the conclusion that Nixon was a man of his times. I don't think he was an anti-Semite in the anti-Semite term, but he took Jew and liberal to be the same thing. Mm. And so I asked Haldeman and, and Ehrlichman, because look, sure. you hear it on the tape, you're Jewish, you see people like Len Garment loyal to, to, to him and, and many other Jews. Uh, I came to the conclusion after two things after listening to the tapes. One, that he probably wasn't an anti-Semite in the classic term anti-Semite. Okay. Uh, and so you, you sort of look at it and say, yeah, but I wouldn't want to do it today. I wouldn't. It wouldn't be good. So uh, that that would be my answer. Okay. Now you're Zadie. You're a grandfather with to a, a young eleven year old beautiful young lady. What do you tell her about JFK? Because this is important. Because Len, I want to get this across to the younger folk that are listening right now. My daughter was born in in 1962. Kennedy killed in 1963. It was such a powerful thing in my life. Mm -hmm. When my son was born, I named him John after John F. Kennedy. His, his name is, is John Culloden. Uh They know how strong I felt about it, because why would I not, if I'm naming my child? And I said to, to my wife, Sandy, I said, you know, we have to, you know, it, it still hurts. It hurts to this day. It's hard to explain, but uh, yeah, it, what I tried to pass on is Kennedy was about the future. Mm. We're not in the future business anymore. We don't, we don't know what the future is. American exceptionalism is, is a joke. We're hated in many places around the world. Americans don't get it through their head. You invaded a sovereign country. You overthrew a country and you were wrong. What, how would you feel if it were the, the country next to you or the country that got invaded? And treating it like, well, it's just another thing. How bad Saddam is wasn't the issue. Let me just extend that question. What would you tell her about Nixon? Nixon is, is a real mixed bag. Mm. He did some things that I approved of, the end result, but the way he went about getting there. So you really have... Yeah, it was good to, to, to do the China thing. And yes, it's time to get going toward peace. And I think he had a lot to do with it. But he, he, he just shredded the Constitution to do it. 
and I, we're paying the price. I see it every day. And when people, you know, say, well, you're writing about Nixon. No, I'm writing about where we are because this is the, this is the end result. Now, do we like the good things? Yeah, I guess, yeah. We get stuff made in China instead of made here. Uh, one of the people that was on, you know, the head of Pepsi-Cola was on the plane with Nixon when he went. You can really make the case for good in the end, but I don't know how you make the case for secrecy in a democracy. I really don't. The same little girl in a few years is going to grow up. She comes to you, Len, and says, Zadie, I'm thinking about going into the armed forces. I, uh, I don't know. I, I, if it were me and I could do it all over again, I'd bring the draft back. That's the way to end wars. That's to affect everybody. This business of of, of mercenaries and treating them, you know, paying them and, and no, and I was surprised at how much they liked 40 years war. Some have told me, uh, Len, we finally found out why we went. We finally understand. And these are guys who did three and four tours. One lousy tour of war is crazy. It's hell. You're going to send people through four or five and it's insane what's going on. And if we were sitting here saying, well, we're the exceptional country, maybe we'd have a different view. There's the music, Glenn. I'm going to have to wrap up. Thank you so much for coming on the show, my friend. You're right. welcome here anytime. Legazant, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Brent Holland from Night Fright. Thank you all for joining us. We'll see you all next time. Order yours right now, nightfrightshow.com.